This is the Temple 10 Q&A, the Temple 10 Q's podcast. The Temple 10 Q is the voice of, by, and for the Temple business law community. So on this episode of the 10 Q&A, our guest is Randy Kaminsky. We're very excited to have him. Randy is Temple Law, class of 1979. After graduating, he moved to Miami to clerk for a judge and then began practicing law at a multi-billion dollar company, Fortune 500 company in Miami, where he became their assistant general counsel. He left the practice of law to join an international accounting firm as their national partner in charge of reorganization. And from there, he started a consulting firm advising on mergers and acquisitions, investment banking, and reorganizations. Randy has such a varied career, both in law and business, and he also led the successful restructuring of one of the world's largest airlines, Continental Airlines, now United. He served as the chief investment officer to the owner of a major league baseball team. He owned and was a CEO of a wealth management and investment banking company in Minnesota. He has been a CEO, a CFO, a chief restructuring officer. He's been on the boards of public and private companies as well as nonprofits. He's very active in philanthropy. And he's published more articles than I have time to mention. Uh, so I'm so excited to have Randy today as our guest. Randy, thank you so much for joining us for the 10 Q&A. Oh, Nate, thank you for inviting me in this introduction. I'm really excited to be here um, and share the lessons I've learned after I graduated from Temple Law School uh, throughout my entire life and career. And frankly, I wish someone had told me what I hope to discuss today when I was younger, some of which are included in my new manuscript. So let's jump right into the pool and go to it, okay? Great, thanks, Randy. So I mentioned that after you graduated, you moved to Miami to clerk for a judge. You had told me before that coming out of law school, you already knew you wanted to practice transactional work. A lot of transactional, aspiring transactional attorneys don't think about clerking. Can you tell us what do you see as the value of clerking for a, a future transactional attorney? Yes. I, I was like everyone else you just mentioned. I had no in, uh, expectations of becoming a clerk and it really happened by accident. Uh, what happened was I was in a uh, law school professor class, his name was Charles Roggeman, and I developed a relationship with him. And one day he asked me to come to his office and asked me if I would be interested in becoming a clerk after graduation. And I said, well, not really. You know, I'm going to just start working. And he said, no, no, come on. I, I'd like you to think about it. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, where is it? And he said, well, Dade County. And I said, oh, okay. Where's Dade County? And he said, come on. How's a nice Jewish boy like you not know where Dade County is? It's Miami. So I said, oh, okay. I could see going down to Miami for a year. I'm sure I'll be interested in, in, in talking to the judge. So he arranged the call. Uh, I spoke to the judge for 10 minutes, and he then offered me the job. And he said, if Raghavan vouched for me, that was good enough for him. So I learned that relationships were critically important 
for my career. So after the bar, and literally the day after the bar, I packed up everything I owned in the car and I moved down and I began the clerkship. And um, I found the clerkship extremely valuable for many reasons. Uh, the judge was an excellent teacher and he really continued my learning uh, process. Uh, we would analyze the law and apply it to the facts and he would talk to me um, and, and I really continued growing my legal reasoning. And that was a very valuable skill. He um, also, he was trial court and we saw a criminal and civil. And um, I saw that litigation was involving over documents and words. And I saw how important words were. And so I became a better draftsman knowing that someday the, the words that I write might be subject to a dispute in litigation. So I, 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 I thought that was valuable. I also networked with a lot of lawyers. And, and um, because of the judge's stature, I met a lot of people. And so it helped me develop connections for the local bar in, in Miami. And um, also I realized it's really the one opportunity in my life to do it. I could practice law the rest of my life but as you know, clerkships are generally offered to recent graduates. And here was my chance to, to try something completely different. So, and I also had some other intangible benefits um, of the clerkship. Um, it allowed me to live in a different location. And that was great to experience Miami. And it taught me what I didn't want to uh, practice. I used it kind of as like career selection so I said, no, I really don't want to practice criminal law. At one point, Raghavan and I talked about practicing white collar crime. And I said, no, don't want to do that. And then most importantly, um, I met a girl several months afterwards. We had been married for over 40 years. I raised my family and I got my first job at a Fortune 500 company, as you mentioned, uh, and put me on the same career path that I was originally thinking about going anyway, but this time I had a, a year of more education under my belt. When you transitioned from the clerkship to working at that Fortune 500 company, how did you make that transition and why did you decide to go in-house instead of into um, a law practice? Um, I, I, first thing I did was set career goals. Uh, I think it's important to, to have a plan uh, and figure out a direction. So um, I think that there are too many people that just take the first job that they're offered and they figured, well, I'll get the next job and, and third job and, and then I'll get on path. I wanted to be very selective in what I wanted to do. Um, I had clerked in, my, in um, Philadelphia at a large law firm I clerked at the EPA, I clerked at a couple of other, and I saw that uh, I belonged or I wanted to start in a corporation versus a law firm for a lot of different reasons. Uh, so I, I came up with this plan and my plan was to work for a corporation in Miami. Now I also, when I plan, I always come up with a backup plan because life doesn't happen according to plan. So. Um, my backup plan was 
I couldn't find the right corporation in Miami, I would move back to Philadelphia and use my network and contacts to presumably get a job. Uh, so, but I did find the job accidentally, really. What had happened was um, there was something at the time called the newspaper that advertised jobs <laughs> in classified sections. And there was an ad for a junior lawyer at a company I never heard of called Rider System, which at the time was even a multi-billion dollar company. I applied and uh, went through the interview process and uh, researched the company and thought it would be interesting. It was in the equipment leasing business. And it came down to two people and um, the, high, the, the, the supervisor of the person was the final person to interview the two people. He was out of town while I was there, uh, but he had met the other person. So he later told me what happened was the hiring committee got together and he said, I do not like the guy I met. Anybody, including an unknown person, is better than the guy I met. So I said, so they, so they said, okay, we'll go with the unknown. So um, I got the job offer as a result of my boss not liking the person. So if you could call it luck or chance, but I look at it as my competitor, and that's the way I view it in the job situation, was not a likable person. So I decided likability and something really important to be in someone's career. And then what happened was this, this supervisor, his name is Frank, uh, and I became good friends. And uh, oh, he, he took me under his wing and became my mentor. And we can talk about that. But what I quickly discovered is that I had better drafting and um, legal skills than he had. He had 10 years my senior, but he both knew that I, I, I could handle the job. So I ha handled the clients. And what we quickly discovered is they didn't come back to me. They went to say Frank. And they, they told him, look, Randy didn't give me bad advice or he's a moron or any of that stuff. They just wanted to talk to Frank. So we determined the reason why is Frank was very likable. He's a naturally likable person. And people like to be with people they like to be with. And so, so just to jump in, is, is that likability, is that a fixed kind of trait? You either have it or you don't? Or is that something that a person can work on? I believe there are people that are naturally likable. And I think we all know people that are naturally likable. Um, and, but I determined to work on it. I was never one of those people. I was never in the cool kids crowd. And, uh, and I said, Frank, we've got to figure out how to make me more likable. So, and, it, and, and using that word very broadly, improving my interpersonal skills, my soft skills, et cetera. Uh, and I think it's critically important to learn. And so we developed a plan as to how I could become more likable. And so what did I do um, to become more likable? Uh, and I still don't think I'm as likable as Frank um, or some other people I can mention, but I'm a lot better than what I was. So um, the first thing I did was I watched people. 
In particular, I watched Frank. What did he do that made people want to talk to him? Well, he first genuinely cared about people. He was concerned more so than business about people's lives or families, etc. And he, people saw it. He was sincere. So how do you become sincere? You have to become a more caring person. Um, and I've read books on it. I attended seminars on it. And I gave, got involved in more charities. But so caring about people was critically important. Secondly, he didn't jump into the business aspect. So we talked about people's lives. And then he asked questions. He didn't pontificate. He asked people, it's kind of like the Socratic method. And he listened. And then he asked follow-up questions. And before you know it, people liked talking to him. So I adopted that style. That's a lot of sage advice there. I appreciate that. Throughout your career, you touched on so many different types of law. And I want to get back to the, the kind of business law world and the business world. Could you speak to the similarities between handling bankruptcies and handling with um, handling M&A transactions? Sure. Um, the, I would say that a bankruptcy encompasses most transactional skills. So in a bankruptcy, um, in a transaction, you have generally two parties uh, that can decide what they want to accomplish and focus on, uh, and the lawyers focus on the legal skills. Bankruptcy, it's a whole different world. First, you have a, um, not two parties and you have all kinds of interested parties. And you have um, bankruptcies encompass most of transactional practice. So in most bankruptcies, financing is an issue. So a transaction lawyer skills of knowing financing is very valuable. Many, many bankruptcies involve some sort of M&A process. So knowing M&A is, is critically important. Bankruptcy involve real estate normally business bankruptcies, I can't talk personal bankruptcies. And so knowing real estate is an important aspect of a transaction. Negotiation is a skill that I think is in a separate category all by itself. Transactions, uh, transactional practice involves negotiation, but it's really only with one other party. In a bankruptcy, the negotiation skills are with everyone. Uh, so you have to deal with employees to the U.S. trustee's office to different kinds of creditors. So learning, honing those negotiation skills are critically uh, important in a bankruptcy. Now, of course, in bankruptcy, you have all the technical rules that also have to be followed. Um, so there's litigation involved. And some bankruptcy lawyers, many bankruptcy lawyers actually specialize and uh, become bankruptcy litigators or not, whether they handle simple motions. Um, but most bankruptcy lawyers, I shouldn't say many bankruptcy lawyers don't even go to court. They have specialized bankruptcy lawyers that go to court uh, and others are more transactional. So having transactional skills is, is really important in a bankruptcy. The most important aspect in a bankruptcy is everything is public and 
Um, and you need to have business skills. So in a transaction, you really don't need to understand the business aspect. But in a bankruptcy, if you're going to try to confirm a plan or not confirm a plan, you really have to understand business. You have to understand business plans. You have to understand financial statements. You have to understand everything from employee compensation to the industry that you're in. And because the judge will want to hear all types of issues and even in the negotiating process. Um, I negotiated with the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation uh, who had a whole different concern than I when I would negotiate with the government of Japan in, in the continental bankruptcy, who had a different concern than the unions, who had a different concern than the banks, who had a different, et cetera. So the points are, you use more skills in a bankruptcy than you generally do in a transaction, okay? And in the continental bankruptcy you mentioned, you were the co-chair of the Unsecured Creditors Committee, correct? So what was that experience like for you and how, uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Unsecured Creditors Committee um, included, you know, was owed debts in the order of maybe a billion dollars or more. And when you're dealing with that many different stakeholders that you're trying to represent uh, and then negotiate with, what's that experience like and how do you even approach it? You know? That's a fascinating question. Um, let me give you a little background on Continental Airlines, okay? At the time they filed bankruptcy in 1991, as you said, they were one of the largest airlines in the world. They had revenue of about five, six billion operations in every continent, um, tens of thousands of employees, and hundreds of thousands of people were dependent on the airline. Uh, I, uh, I learned so much of the continental bankruptcy. Um, becoming the chairman of the creditors committee was a really interesting experience as well. Um, and, um, uh, and serving in that role, I learned a lot. So uh, before I answer your phone question, let me give you a, a couple of stories or two. So um, I was, uh, the Committee of Unsecured Creditors generally consists of seven members, generally, it varies, but uh, they're all supposedly having the identical interest, that is unsecured creditors. So you, you can deal with someone who has a billion dollar unsecured claim the same way you deal with somebody with a $10 claim. But the truth is within that realm, everyone is not the same because in all the bankruptcies I've dealt with, I would get calls from saying, my business is going to go out of business if I don't get paid. My family is going to literally not have any income as opposed to a, a, a billion dollar claim, which is just another write-off. So you, there are some particular sympathies with um, unsecured creditors. The difference is then negotiating with the equity holders uh, as well as the secured creditors and the equipment lessors, et cetera. So the negotiation process doesn't end with just the unsecured group. So within the unsecured, you have categories, and then you have all these other people to deal with. But 
when I was um, uh, uh, the first meeting of the um, company was in a New York hotel. And we had hundreds of people in the audience and I was seated next to, uh, on, the, on the podium next to the chairman of the board. His name was Charles. And it, Charles was in his mid seventies and I was in my mid thirties. And uh, there were a couple of other people on the podium, but really he and I were the, the main act. And uh, we just talked and I said, I'm just gonna get to know him as a person. And we didn't talk one word of business. And the conversation just flowed the way we talked about. I asked questions, et cetera. And I found he asked questions of me. So we both went to the same school of learning how to have a conversation. And uh, in fact, the, um, the, the CEO had to interrupt us and say, you guys stop talking. You now address everybody. We were having a good time. And so we both did our speeches and then, uh, when I came off, one of the executives said to me, do you know who you just had dinner with? I said, no, he's a chairman. He's a nice old guy, like my grandfather. He said, no, he's one of the richest guys in the world. He owns a major league baseball team. He owns a stadium. He owns banks and you know, the yin yang and all these other companies. And I said, whoa. And so about a few days later, he called me up. And he said, I want you to come to my office and talk. So I went there and he said, you know what? A lot of people kind of kiss my butt, but you didn't. And he said, you were genuine. And he said, because of that, I can trust you. I want to you and me to work together to save this airline. I said, okay. So that began a relationship. We were successful. And I'll tell you in a minute all the things we did. Um, and then what happened is I stayed in touch with him. And years later, he called me. And he said, I want you to become my chief investment officer. And that changed my life also. So by being genuine in the first case and staying that way and caring about him, um, it changed my life. And I learned, he was the nicest guy I've ever met, one of the most likable guys, the richest guy I've ever met. And, um, but he did so many nice things that I learned so much from him that I, the story I'm telling you that you don't have to be, a, uh, you can be a nice guy and still finish last, if you will, or something like that, whatever that saying goes. So, so we dealt with Continental in a wide variety of ways. Um, but ultimately, um, should I give you one more Continental story? Yeah, that would be great. Okay. So this story involves the most important challenge of my life. And what had happened was uh, the, um, there were a number of banks and other institutions that wanted to shut down the airline. And they, they knew that the airline industry was in trouble and they didn't think it could survive. And some of the uh, creditors on the committee felt the same way. Now I told everyone that I, as a trade creditor, wanted to keep the company afloat. And I did not have a hidden agenda. And so I um, flew out. So I arranged the creditors committee meeting. Um, and we were going to vote on this life and death point. And the truth is the, um, 
bankruptcy judge in Delaware would probably have supported management who probably doesn't want to shut down. But in reality of bankruptcies, and Continental in particular was, you, you, you need the support of the creditors committee. Uh, it's one thing for the judge to say, no, you shall do it. But if you don't have the trade behind you in the real world, that's a major problem. So uh, the creditors committee had a tremendously persuasive influence on the judge and, and the ability to survive. So I, I said to myself, I've got to persuade the people on the committee that are in favor of shutting down. So um, how, was, how, how could I do that? So I firstly became overly prepared. I called each of the members and I asked them, what did they think? I asked questions. What do you think? Why do you think it? Tell me what motivates you for that opinion. I didn't question them. I didn't disagree with them. But it was really important to me to learn what motivates people. I negotiated hundreds of contracts, thousands really, writer. And it's always critically important for me to know what the other side's interested in, they're motivated in doing. So um, I was armed with that information. And um, I got off of the plane in Houston where their headquarters was. And I looked around the airport and I saw nothing but continental planes, tens of thousands of people in the airport. And I knew by the end of the day, all of these people could be out of a job and it could be totally dark. And I said, I'm not gonna do that. I'm going to use every skill that I had learned my entire career to try to save these employees. And to be candid with you, I really wasn't thinking about Ryder. I wasn't thinking about me. I wasn't thinking about the company. I was thinking about the employees. And I was thinking about my religious training and something called the golden rule, which is found in most religions. And that is treat people the way you'd want to be treated, phrased in a little different way. And I knew these people were looking at me to try to save their jobs. I saw another airline company called Eastern Airlines liquidate in Miami. I had friends that really were, lost their jobs, were on the verge of suicide. And I saw this is not gonna happen uh, if I can do anything about it. So we called a meeting together. I had management present a plan, which I was heavily involved with. And then I, as the chairman, I excused management and investment bankers and the lawyers because I had not learned that having small number of people in a meeting is more productive than having a lot of people. And I was armed with the information that people had told me. So I, I began this negotiation because some people definitely wanted to shut it down by a technique that I also learned in, in the negotiation, that is start with something easy, something that people can agree on. What was that? Employees, no, nobody. There wasn't the Simon Legree in the group that said, oh, the hell with these people, let them eat cake. No, no, everybody was very sympathetic to the plight of the employees. And then uh, people voiced a concern that's really typical in most bankruptcies, which is, they lost confidence in management, and particularly the CEO to even carry out the plan. And I've seen that argument many times. In fact, that's why I got appointed as a chief restructuring officer in several cases, because 
the secured creditor or somebody loses confidence in management. And what I did was um, I let him talk and then I agreed with him. I, and I generally believe that. So I was on their side to solve a problem, okay, which I felt was really valuable. And the problem was uh, and the CEO. And the CEO had just been recruited by the board a few months before the bankruptcy. And he was the president of Delta Airlines, a highly profitable growing airline. And the board thought, well, if he ran Delta, he could run us. Well, I learned, and all, all the people in the committee knew that it takes a different set of skills to turn around a troubled company, particularly one in bankruptcy. And someone who has the ability to run a profitable company probably does not the same person to run a highly troubled company. So I called my friend, the chairman of the board. He agreed. We fired um, the president. And I told that to the committee. And Charles and I um, ran the company. We put the CFO in charge. We did not have a CEO throughout all the bankruptcy. It was really me and but Charles to a lesser extent and the CFO. And so then the, the committee still wasn't convinced. So I said, listen, let me give you one more compromise solution. Because I believe in compromises. It's really important in any negotiation. And I said, look, here's a plan. Um, it shows upside if, if it's carried out properly. And obviously if it's not carried out, it's downside. But this is what I'm willing to do. I will spend the most of my life working with management to try to oh, my best to implement this plan. And the, all the people in the committee, the six other members knew me. I had developed a relationship. I had become dependable. I was reliable. I was candid. I was open. And I think those are critically important traits in establishing interpersonal skills with other people. So when I said, look, I will keep you in the loop on a weekly basis. If this thing goes sour, if they're not listening to me, if whatever reason happens, I will call you up and we will immediately shut it down. But let's try our best to save these jobs. Let's try our best to implement the plan Let's deal with the variables we couldn't deal with, we could deal with, and let's see if we can turn it around. And that's what happened. We wound up, I negotiated, we brought in tens of millions of dollars in new equity, and we had a bake-off, and I met with all these people. And we successfully submitted a plan of reorganization, um, negotiated for a couple of years, and it became big news. It was worldwide news. It was, I was quoted in the New York Times. So it, was, it became a case study at the Harvard Business School. Um, and more importantly, we saved tens of thousands of jobs. We saved hundreds of thousands of jobs from dependent companies. And it was frankly the most important, the most proud moment of my entire career was in the meeting when the committee voted unanimously to support the plan. Okay. That's, that's an incredible story. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. When the time came for you to transition out of law and into business, how did you 
decide to do that? And then how did you execute your plan? What was the uh, motivation to leave law and move into business? I, I had, again, I've always had a plan of, of everything I did. So when I decided to stop practicing law, I thought about law school. I thought about the training. I thought about the expense. That was all I knew really. And even though I was involved in business, um, but, and I was making pretty good living at it, honestly, as a senior executive at Ryder. On the other hand, like most lawyers, I was miserable. Uh, I, and I knew that my life wasn't going to get any better. And maybe I'd make a few more bucks, but that money at a certain level doesn't make you happy. Didn't make me happy. So I said, if I stay here, I'm definitely going to be miserable. If I leave, I could be miserable uh, in the other job, but there's a chance that I could be happier. So let me take a chance to be happier. And then I had a backup plan. If it didn't work out, I could always practice law again. And I think um, before quitting at that job or any other job, um, I balanced how much time, money, and effort I have into it. But I also think of it as a sunk cost. And I don't let the past define my future. And I think that's unfortunately so many, especially lawyers say, that's all I know, I couldn't do anything else. I gave a speech 20 years ago that the value of a law degree is much broader than people think. And, and the education is can be transferred and those skills to other things. And in fact, um, I, the situation is really not much different today. Uh, last year, there were like 47 million people that quit in what's called the great resignation. And it's still continuing every month now. Um, there was a recent report, I mean, the last couple of weeks, it said at least 9 million people have regretted making a move. And they're unhappier now than they were before. So um, I, I looked at that and I thought, wouldn't that number be lower if they kind of did what I did, if they really understand their career goals, they get a better job of due diligence as to their future job um, and realized why they wanted to leave their job. I mean, I, I gave a speech to the Chief Financial Officers Council of the United States on why do you want to leave your job and the traits of a CEO. And I think people, young people especially, gravitate to a job or they leave because of money or for all the wrong reasons. And, and I think that makes lawyers in particular remain unhappy. Okay. So it sounds clear. I think I understand the reason why you wanted to move out of law because you didn't like it at that point, what was interesting to you about working in the business world or continuing to work in the business world, but from a non-legal perspective? Well, I, I, I transitioned totally away from law, but I used those legal skills. What was fascinating to me in accepting the job at Coopers and Lybrand, which is now Pricewaterhouse Coopers, that's where the name comes from, was that it was reorganization. 
So I was a financial advisor doing the lead negotiations for all the myriad of issues that we talked about. And to me, it was fascinating. I loved helping save jobs. And so, uh, and, and then what happened is I left Coopers and Libran, uh, and actually I was fired, but that's a different story. Um, and, um, but I wanna do the same thing in business. So that's when I got into helping people in mergers as well as raising capital and well as being an interim executive. Because to me, it was much broader than practicing law and personally more uh, enjoyable um, using a whole set of skills as opposed to being a targeted lawyer. And I, I try to differentiate myself even when I practice law by learning business. And I think that, look, there's a million lawyers out there. And most of those lawyers don't want to learn business. Their eyes glaze over when you look at a financial statement or a balance sheet, or they don't understand cash flow. And I love that stuff. So for me, that was critically important. But but I, I, I tell your audience that it's never too late to learn business. And I'll tell you a personal story. My sons, um, I have two sons, twins, uh, Jeffrey and Mitchell, and they went to college and I advised them both to take business courses. And Jeff listened to me as an undergrad and Mitchell didn't. Um, Jeff is practicing a law firm now and he's happy. And, but Mitchell went into the government and became a senior lawyer for the United States Congress, particularly the Senate. And then he left uh, to become a uh, venture capitalist. And he knew he didn't know business. So he took some graduate courses and the programs and, and he then realized that it was never too late to learn business. So he doesn't have to become a CPA, but he has to really understand everything from a business plan to dealing with marketing and management and the, the, all the other disciplines in the, in the business world. So I love that. And that's how I made a good living doing um, non-legal stuff. And I was happy. Honestly, I, I feel so sorry for lawyers that are unhappy and have to go through these mental wellness programs. Um, there are so many other you know, there's a fr friend in, in Rider used to say, this is not a dress rehearsal, you know, um, and you need to be happy and money will come uh, if you're happy and you're doing something that keeps you up every night. And that's what I look forward to doing. There are a lot of great lessons in there. And I think I want to give you one last chance in case you have any other kind of take home messages or advice for new lawyers or current practicing attorneys, what is one thing that you would recommend uh, them to think about or to do? Uh, well, I, I can't say one thing, okay? Because I want people to become more caring and being able to connect with other people. Um, and in, but in order to accomplish the, those goals, which includes being likable and liking people, and being interesting and interested in people. Um, 
probably the best thing that I'd recommend is keep in contact with your connections. So I believe in an old expression, it's not who you know, uh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And it's always wrong true for me. And creating new relationship and networking is really important, has been really important in my career. And, and, and I've had repeat customers, I've had referrals, like the chairman of Continental, I told you that story, but I, what I didn't tell you, he referred me to another major baseball team owner who has been one of my closest friends and biggest clients who referred me to 17 other people and I've had repeat customers. So your clients, so your clients of today uh, will be, should be your clients of tomorrow. And I believe that the client connections that I made in the past were very valuable for me going forward. So what I, I'd like people to think is really, I'd like to give you an action, call to action. You know, talking is nice, but here's what I'd like to do. I'd like you to kind of do what I did. And, and if it works for you, that's great. If not, modify it. Uh, stay in touch with your oldest friends uh, on a regular basis. Use calls, emails. I don't believe, call me old school, Nate, you might, when we hang up. Um, but I don't believe LinkedIn or Facebook or any online communications is the way to develop and deepen relationships. I think physical contact, whether it's calls and emails, even texts are better than nothing. And certainly not once a year Christmas cards or any of that stuff. When I get once a year, I know they're just trying to go down their list and it's very insincere. So stay in touch with your old friends. Another thing, stay in touch with your law school friends. So everybody's got dozens of close friends that they've acquired over these years. Uh, I was the CEO of, during the pandemic, I was the CEO of a, a good sized charity that um, provided food and support for over 850 Holocaust survivors and other very poor people in South Florida. And it made national press. And, and one of my classmates in California, who's, uh, I hadn't talked to him in 40 years, contacted me. And it was like old home week. We didn't miss a day. And now we share each other's lives. And, um, and I'd also ask that you set a specific number, a target number of new people that you're going to meet over a certain period of time. It's, it's many people are working uh, remotely. It's really hard. It's, it's life interrupts, but um, deepen your relationship with those people. Uh, treat them as a person first, not as a business opportunity. Uh, any success I had, I never called somebody up and said, hey, what are you working on? Is there something in it for me? That's not what I did. What's happening with your kid? Okay, and vice versa. And um, and I get it. People are going to say, Rand, I'm busy. I have my family. I've got this. I got work. I got a million other things. Well, I have those same family demands, etc. I have them today. And somehow, I found the time to watch one less Netflix show or don't spend an hour surfing on the web for no purpose in mind. And I'll pick up the phone or send an email to a half a dozen people. 
the time is, and it's, and the, the last thought I really want everyone to know about me in that process. I never looked at this as an obligation or a job or a have to do. I like to do that. I really want to stay in touch with people. I, not everyone, of course, but the people that I want to, I want to help them. I want them to help me. I, if I have a problem, I want to be able to call an old classmate and say, what would you do in this situation? And that's the way I've developed my personal life and my business life, listening to other people, asking and staying in contact with them. So that's not one thing I know, so forgive me. Well, that is one thing it sounds like. The important thing is relationships and by investing in relationships, by investing in them today, not waiting for tomorrow, um, we can take care of ourselves and we can take care of each other and the rest takes care of itself. So, Randy, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me for the 10 Q&A. Thank you very much for having me and good luck in your future endeavors, everyone.